frustrating because at that point, like I was ready to roll. I'm like, oh, well, you're going to protest, like whatever, like let's do this. And then they never came. So, you know, if this kid's out there listening, I'm a little disappointed he didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> but don't take it as an invitation to protest Caitlin yeah, now at the state house. Don't, I think the, please don't the ever come back passed. into my life. Welcome back to another episode of In the Aisle. As always, I'm your host, Christina, and it's great to have you all back here today to have another chance to listen to yet another episode of this podcast. For those of you who are joining me for the first time today, it's so great to have you. And if you couldn't tell, that clip in the beginning comes from my guest today named Caitlin Wright. And I was so happy that she agreed to do this podcast episode with me today, as well as the one on Sunday. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the conversation we had surrounding women in government and politics. I have just a few things that I want to go over before going into the outline of this episode so you know what you can expect while tuning in. The first thing that I want to say that some of you probably already know, but just want to bring it up again for anyone joining me for the first time today. With each episode, I do news recaps and news analysis of what I've talked about in the recaps so we can understand what is happening in the news a little bit better. In weeks that I have interviews like this one that I have with Caitlin, I push the news analysis to the second part of the episode so that way in terms of time we have time to focus on Caitlin in her interview, as well as, you know, not sacrificing the quality of the analysis. So you can check out the full analysis for that in part two, along with Caitlin's second half of your interview that will premiere on Sunday. The second thing that I wanted to say is that we are reaching a huge milestone here for In the Isle podcast. The really exciting thing that I would not have predicted was that we are almost at 25 states for where this podcast has been streamed. So all the different locations people have been tuning in have been so cool to see on my end of my analytics. And I would love to see it get to 25 uh, before the end of the month. Wanted to say it now, if, if you know of anybody and really anywhere, feel free to share this with them so we can try to see if we can get to 25 states, aka half the country. But I'll definitely let you know when that happens. I'm sure it will. It's just a matter of time. But it's really cool to see, and I'm very excited, of course, to see the 25th state will come and join the In the Isle family. Like I said, it's just a matter of time when that will happen. And I wanted to take a moment also to talk about the title, because this is actually something I thought I would never see again. A very calm and slow week in politics. I straight up have not seen this, I think, since 2015. So it was kind of weird like doing research for this this week because there wasn't a whole lot that was going on, which was a real surprise. So part of me asking myself, you know, is this the calm before the storm? Are we going to get a slew of things coming our way with a bunch of controversies or headlines and things of that nature? Or is this kind of how it's going to be from now on? I mean, if this is how it's going to be, I'm not complaining because I think we all need a break at, for the not even the last four years, I would argue the last five years themselves have been hard for everybody in terms of what we've been dealing with with our government. So we'll 
we'll keep our fingers crossed that this is how it's going to be from now on. But again, I'm going to be hesitant. I'm not going to accept it until it is staring me in the face that things are going to get settled down and kind of be more back to normal with how they are typically with how our government runs. The last thing that I want to say in terms of, you know, interviews that I have for this month, I have made sure that I am getting representation on both sides of the aisle when talking to the women in politics that I have selected for this month. So Caitlin today will be the representation from the Republican Party and my future interview will be a woman who is from the Democratic Party. And the reason for this is I want to try to highlight the fact that while there are differences between the two parties, a lot of the times we we tend to actually believe in the same thing, believe it or not. I know that's a, it's a hard concept to grasp, especially in the world that we're living in today. But um, it's something that I, I truly believe in, that we're really not that different when everything is said and done at the end of the day. So like I said, I wanted to make sure that I got someone from each party to get a chance to hear from. And this podcast is always going to be a space too for for people of all backgrounds and all different kinds of voices. So I want to start, you know, getting different types of people on here and not just have it always be Democrats, which have been the last two. And while it was absolutely wonderful hearing from Hannah and Ishmael and what they had to say, I realized I haven't gotten a Republican yet and want to take advantage of that this time around with uh, my friend Caitlin, who again is somebody I admire greatly and cannot wait for you to hear from. Now, what you can expect in this episode would be, of course, going over the news recap that I have for you all today, and then from there getting into D-Cubed. After that will be the reason why I'm sure all of you are here listening, you're very excited about, would be to listen to what Caitlin has to say in the conversation we had. And then from there, I will close everything out and do a quick summary, as well as go into details of what you can expect in part two. So with that being said, I am going to jump right into the news recap. The first piece of news that I want to talk about with you all today comes from the House. So there was a piece of legislation that was actually passed through the House at the beginning of this week called for the People Act. And it was voted down pretty much from party line. So Democrats in favor with Republicans being against it. And before I get into the details of what this bill entails, what I can tell you is that it will be moving on to the Senate where it will need 10 Republicans to be in favor of it in order to avoid a filibuster. And as we now know what filibusters are because of D-cubed last week, you know what's at stake in terms of that bill if, you know, a filibuster does happen. Always feel free to check out former D-cubed segments, especially with the filibuster one if you'd like a refresher. But I think it's something that we're going to have to definitely watch out for just in case that, it, it again, it does happen in the Senate. So now moving on to the things that this bill does. So it actually creates same-day voting registration nationwide, which is huge. And some states do actually have this currently, like the state of New Hampshire, where on election day, or really any election day, it doesn't have to just be for the presidency every four years, you can show up and register to vote that same day. The benefit of this is that it actually brings in a lot of new voters because 
you have to be sure otherwise that you're registered to vote long before the election actually happens. So if you don't do that, then you're not able to vote. Additionally, this bill will expand voting by mail, which is something we saw a lot of in the 2020 election, and potentially expand absentee voting as well if it's being done through the mail. And it will also be restoring a lot of things that were in the original Voting Rights Act of 1965 that have since been taken away over time. Now, I'm not going to get into, into the specifics of that just because there's a lot of like random little things that would take me forever to go over. And they're honestly not things that we really need to be concerning ourselves with right now. But just wanted to, to point that out because, you know, this isn't the first Voting Rights Act that we were seeing. And while it is called the For the People Act, it basically is a voting rights bill that is being passed right now. The thing about this bill that I'm actually really excited to, to see, and I'm sure once I talk about it in the analysis that you'll be excited as well, is that it's limiting corporate donations to campaigns, which doesn't sound huge, but like I said, in the analysis, I'll go over why we, we should be caring about that part of the bill. The last piece of the bill, which is kind of funny because I think it's really only in there because of the 2016 and 2020 elections, basically stating that anybody who's running for president needs to show their tax returns. This is really great because it's going to provide a lot of transparency for people who are voting, of course, for presidential candidates. And we'll, get, we'll touch upon that in part two of this episode, but just wanted to outline that so you can be aware of it. And again, these are the things that I think are the most important coming from the bill that we'll be sure to touch on in part two. The second thing that I want to point out from this week comes from Biden's cabinet. We actually saw a lot, lot of cabinet confirmations go through, particularly with Merrick Garland, Marsha Fudge, and Michael Regan. I want to highlight in particular Merrick Garland because for those of you who don't know, the past five or six years or so at this point, Merrick Garland has gone through the absolute ringer. And I will be talking about that in the analysis, but it really would made me happy to see that he has now been confirmed to be the attorney general of this country after the ordeal he's been through, which again, we'll talk about. But it really, it was really cool to see that, at least, and I want to make sure that you knew that. And in general, with all these cabinet confirmations, they have all pretty much passed with at least a two-thirds majority in the Senate, which means that there have been bipartisan votes to make sure that they are passed to, uh, again, be able to be on Biden's cabinet. And that is actually the topic that I'm going to be diving into with D-Cubes today. We'll be, of course, talking about the cabinet, its functions, and its purpose in the White House. The last thing that I am going to touch upon is really unfortunate situation. We'll be talking about the immigration policy that's coming from the White House. Now, just as a disclaimer before I get into the details that I want to highlight from this, um, the White House has been very wishy-washy with this policy. Some days they, they're very progressive and they, they want this immigration policy to be more friendly and to, of course, get rid of the detention centers that we have, for example. But then they do other things like, for example, again, with those detentions that are just keeping them up and running and not doing anything to close them that kind of are making people question whether or not the Biden administration is going to follow through with the promises that they made, that they were going to improve the immigration policy in place and overturn stuff that Trump put in place in terms of immigration policy. 
So in particular to this week, we've actually seen a lot of migrant children coming to the United States through the Mexico border. And to clarify, these aren't just Mexican children. They are coming all through South and Central America, making their way typically by foot to get to the Mexico-Texas border that we have. And then from there, the children who are usually by themselves and don't have any parents with them are taken to, again, those detention centers that are in terrible, terrible places. It's I, I, I can't even think of what I can equate them to. It's just it's going to be a very dark stain on this country's history looking when people look back and look at that the fact that we even had these detention centers. But that's something that I'm going to stay objective right now. We'll talk about that a little bit in the analysis. The other thing I want to highlight is that deportations are still happening daily. And Biden explicitly said that he wouldn't do anything to deport people in his first 100 days in office. The last thing that I want to highlight is that the White House is trying to quote-unquote encourage or suggest that migrants come back to the United States when we as a country are better equipped to handle them or when our immigration system is stronger. And there aren't any indicators of when that could be seen as, you know, our system is stronger or when we will be better equipped to handle more immigrants coming into this country legally. But that is what they are doing right now to people who are trying to come into this country. Now that you know what happened this week, I am going to jump into D-Cubed, where, of course, talking about the presidential cabinet. So let's jump right in in D-Cubed today to talk about the presidential cabinet that we have in this country. So the first thing that you need to know that these are positions that are appointed by the president, which in this case would be President Biden and then confirmed by the Senate. The House has nothing to do with these confirmations. It is solely on the Senate and is part of the responsibilities they have as a chamber. But each position that the president appoints has to be confirmed by by them in order for the person to start being able to serve in that position. And if it gets to the point that the Senate does not confirm somebody, it is within Biden's right to appoint somebody new. The general function of the cabinet They're basically just like a group of people that advise the president on any decisions that relates to the area that they specialize in. So, for example, I mean, you probably already know a lot of cabinet positions anyways before I go into this. But I just want to point out, like, it would be like something like secretary of state is considered a cabinet position, secretary of the treasury, secretary of agriculture, and specializations like that. So it's really helpful for the president because they obviously have knowledge and expertise, but can't know everything and can't be an expert in everything. So it's really great that they can have these people on their cabinet advise them when they need to with legislation or even like, for example, secretary of state, like in foreign matters, it's really helpful to have somebody there to help them with that. And while they can advise the president one-on-one, they also can meet as a group too to advise the president as a whole on all important decisions regarding their respective areas. The cabinet is composed of the vice president and 15 executive departments, the White House chief of staff, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and people like that. And it's really interesting, too, with the cabinet that not everyone knows, but they are the first group of people that we go to to see who would replace 
the president and the vice president if something were to happen to them. So, for example, like the pecking order, like let's say President Biden hypothetically entered a coma and couldn't do his power as president. Then, of course, we know vice president would take over, which would be Kamala Harris. From there, if, if let's say she also was in a coma at the same time, it would go towards the secretary of state. After that, it would be the secretary of the treasury, the secretary of defense. And then the Secretary of Justice, like those are the top five that it goes towards, which is really interesting because a lot of those positions are not things that we personally vote for. So we have part of why we vote for the president is because we have to trust him to pick people in his cabinet that if you know something were to happen to him or the vice president, that we could trust whoever would be taking over the presidency. That is also what the TV show Designated Survivor is based on. And for those of you who don't know what designated survivor is, it's basically this concept that only one member of the cabinet has survived when the president and everyone else has died, and they are now the new president. And that basically is what happens. There there really are true things as what we call a designated survivor. In situations like that, it would be on, like for example, on the night of the, the State of the Union address, the president and vice president and almost every cabinet member except for one goes to Capitol Hill to hear the State of the Union. The one cabinet member will stay behind. It's it's different each year. Like They all take turns and switch off. But one cabinet member will stay behind in case something does happen, like if there was an explosion at the Capitol building and everyone perished. And so that way this country would still have a leader and have someone be able to take over at that point. So just a little, not a fun fact, I call it. It's kind of a morbid fact, but we we tend to not pay attention to our cabinet members that much. And they actually do hold a lot of power and could potentially, if it gets to that point, be leading us and be our head of state. The other thing that cabinet members do is that while they do advise the president, they're also the head of, again, of their respective departments. And so on an individual level, they're in charge of all of that, what happens in that area. They can implement new rules within their department, implement overall change, and also help to, you know, get legislation through the pipeline that has to do with their areas to either get it talking about it with the president or, you know, get talking to people in the House or the Senate who could potentially create legislation surrounding the area that they are passionate about or, you know, are in charge of in terms of their respective departments. So that is really all that you need to know in terms of the cabinet. It's it's interesting since they are very powerful people and of course like I said are in the pecking order of who would become president if the president and vice president on were to perish in some a weird scenario but they there isn't a lot that we need to know beyond what I've said if you have any questions about this as always feel free to shoot me a dm at in the aisle podcast on instagram and I'd be happy to answer them for you but we're just going to keep it very high level today in terms of the cabinet So that way, if we do talk about cabinet confirmations moving forward, you can at least understand, you know, the cabinet's function and what they are in charge of doing. We have officially reached the portion where we can hear from Caitlin today, which I'm sure is what you have been anticipating the most. So without further ado, here is the conversation that I had with Caitlin this past weekend. 
Our guest today on In the Aisle is actually somebody that I've known for a few years now. And fun fact, met her at the same leadership conference that I met Hannah Smith at. So whenever you're ready, girlfriend, take it away. Hey, everyone. My name is Caitlin Wright. So excited to be here today with Christina. I work in the Massachusetts State Legislature, and I am excited to be here to talk with you about women in politics uh, and particularly women in state legislatures. Great. Thank you, Caitlin. And I just want to give the people out there some context for this, because I think it's so fun to like, especially when I have people that like, I, I know very well as a guest on my show, like talking about like how we met. So Caitlin and I actually were roommates at this women's leadership conference. And we've, we've really been friends ever since. Like we have like a small group of us who like have stayed in touch. And it's, it's so wonderful too. I know Caitlin can probably attest to this, but she's like one of those people in my life who like, I, even if I don't talk to you for a while, like when we do talk again, like it's just so fun. I and mean, we pick up right where we left off. So I am so excited to have her here with me today and give you guys the chance to get to talk to her a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So, That's sort of what I was thinking as soon as you started talking about our friendship. We can always pick up where we left off, and I love that. So <laughs> very grateful to have you in my life. Oh, my God. You're <laughs> flattering me. I'm blushing. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's, let's get right into this then, Caitlin. So let's talk a little bit about more what you do at the State House because I think personally, actually, I'll, I'll let you explain it to the people, okay. and then I'll give you my <laughs> two cents. But I, I think you're, you're fantastic, and you have a long career in politics ahead of you. Well, thank you. I don't know about that. We'll see. <laughs> the more I work in it, the less I want anything to do with it. Oh. But, but you know, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from a career in politics. So, um, yeah. So uh, I have been working in the state legislature since December of 2017, uh, right after I graduated college. Literally, I graduated on a Thursday night and on a Monday I started at the state house. So for from December of 2017 until January of this year, I worked for uh, State Representative Will Crocker um, from the second in Barnstable District. It was a really unique opportunity. And honestly, it was the best job that I could have had coming straight out of college and the best boss too. I, I just got very lucky and I don't think many people can say that. Now I work for another state representative also from the Cape, Stephen Exaros, so the fifth Barnstable District. So I moved a little bit more north and west but <laughs> they're neighbors so um so that's what i do uh i am the legislative aide for both of well like not anymore but i was the legislative aide for will uh and now i'm the legislative aide for steve and for lack of better words i do everything i know that's uh very vague but anything and everything that comes across our desk and through our office i handle whether that's media communications constituent outreach helping to draft legislation, scheduling, just day-to-day -day office management. That's what I do. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that because I think a lot of people don't realize like what staffers do and like how much they do because it's like that while the representatives and senators like do so much and like they're of course the ones like in the chamber and like making the legislation, like they couldn't do any of that if they didn't have like a well-oiled machine behind them with their staff. So it's, it, to me, it, whenever you talk about like what you do, I'm always in awe because I'm like, wow, like she really just literally does everything. You I mean, you have to have expertise in like 
all those areas to make sure that things are getting done correctly. Yeah. Too. I always feel kind of like when people ask me what I do for work and my response is, well, everything. Like, I don't mean to sound like cocky or anything when I say that, but what I do is just so broad. There's not a good word to describe it. And I, I mean, it's great because it's given me a good challenge, particularly during COVID that, you know, the workload has increased a lot. So it's been a great experience and has really challenged me in ways that I would never have imagined to be challenged in a job at such a young age too. Yeah, of course. It's and I, I'm glad you brought that up as well because I want the people listening to know that Caitlin, I know she's gonna sound wicked humble throughout this whole interview, but she is somebody who let's what, like five years now, almost since you graduated from college, and you've pretty much grown into both of the positions that you've had like so well in my opinion and you correct me if i'm wrong but you were the chief of staff for for will and now for your current state rep right uh yeah sort of so technically my title is legislative aide but will had let me call myself chief of staff even though there's no other <laughs> staff <laughs> so i'm gonna be honest here um and and my new boss steve does the same just because like they've always felt that the title aide is just not enough to really describe what I do. And with being Republicans, and I shouldn't say just Republicans, because there are a lot of Democrats that only have one staffer as well. So most Republicans will only get one staffer. And then if you're a Democrat that doesn't have uh, any like chairmanship, leadership positions, or even a vice chairmanship, you're just going to have one staffer. So everything falls on that person to do. And they just felt that the title of aide was not really, not that it's a bad title, but I just did so much more that I deserve to be I don't want to say recognized for it, but, and I had a couple, you know, conservative friends on campus and that I, you should something, yes. <laughs> you know, the title should acknowledge the work that I do. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, I completely agree with that because as somebody who's interned in the state house multiple times and like actually applied for jobs there, I can attest firsthand just how much you have to be doing in your type of position. So that's really awesome, Caitlin. I'm so glad that people are getting a chance to hear from you today and a little bit more about like what you do. But I wanted to to jump a little bit to before your career and talking about college a little bit, because I think um, I remember you telling me this at the leadership conference that you were actually the founding member at MCLA for the young college Republicans. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I did my undergrad out at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams. So way out in Western Mass, pretty much as West as you can get. It's a really liberal area. I don't know. We just decided one day, like we had all been sort of active in politics. I had interned at the state house already at one point um, and we're working on campaigns and we had seen and heard from other people that their colleges had college Republicans chapters. So we said, you know, why don't we try to do this? So you have to, in order to become a recognized club, I'm not going to, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but you know, you have to get maybe like 20 kids to say they'll actually join the club and, and all these other things. So trying to find like 20 conservative kids that want to join this club in the middle of like very liberal Western mass with only 1200 kids in your population was kind of hard. But we did it. And it was honestly, while I was there, a very successful club. Um, unfortunately, as far as I know now, it's sort of uh, defunct. They didn't really continue it on once I left. But so it was originally my friend Tyler Spencer and myself that started with this idea of getting it going. And it was certainly no easy feat because, first of all, MCLA is a really small school. We have about 1,200 kids that go there. 
I don't know, like I didn't want people to just think of us as college Republicans. And especially because while we were starting up the club and everything, it was right around the 2016 election. So tensions were were pretty high with people on campus. And I didn't want to give us like a bad connotation from the start. So I tried to make it very inclusive and I didn't want to just have events that were solely conservative. So I tried to do like, you know, political jeopardy night where we had like pizza and prizes for people. I had one time we had our, one of our con law professors come and talk about like rights of students and free speech and how that works on campus. Um, Cause there was a couple students of color that had been protesting around campus and putting up flyers uh, in solidarity with other people and the like school resource department. I'm not going to get the name of it. Right. But they said the students <laughs> couldn't put the flyers up because they hadn't gotten permission to do that. So in response to that, I was like, you know what? The con law professor should come and talk about this because they technically do have the right to do this. So I wanted people to know that even if you weren't a Republican, even if you weren't conservative or even political at all, like, you could come. And we did have like a core group of people that were solidly conservative that would come and, and join the club. But then we'd have people float in and out that just wanted to see what we were about, come to a meeting. And so eventually we had a pretty well-rounded group. And I think at the height of our club, we had about 25 members that would show up to meetings, which to me in such a small campus was huge. So I don't know. It was a good experience, but we definitely faced our our fair share of backlash from people on campus that just didn't agree with the club, didn't didn't like the idea of Republicans on campus, I suppose. So mm-hmm. um, it was interesting and uh, it taught me a lot, too, at a young age and how to deal with that in an appropriate manner to get your message out there and make sure everybody feels welcome, but still stand your ground, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you're, you're pointing this out because it, I think a lot of the times when people think about the parties that we have, they view them both in very specific ways. And I think what you were doing with the college Republicans on your campus was just kind of pushing against the norm and actually be like, no, like we can be a group that like we, we have our beliefs, but we want to be inclusive to everybody and want to be welcoming. And I, it, to me, I remember when you were telling me this, I just remember thinking like, wow, I just think people just weren't prepared for that. And we're, we're trying to find reasons to tear you down when they really should have been lifting you up because you were creating an environment that was so welcoming to everybody. And we were, I remember you were trying really hard to, to connect with a lot of people on the campus, which is something that I admired. I, I'm, a, I'm so sad to hear that it's no longer active at MCLA, but if anybody from this, from MCLA is listening, <laughs> you can change that. Yes, please do. <laughs> you can My hard work all gone to waste now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great but the the one thing I do want to ask like what would you say was like the biggest obstacle with that because you know like you said like being a conservative in such a blue state like it can be I and I don't want to put words into your mouth so please correct me if I'm wrong but sometimes I feel like it could be isolating and kind of hard to, to navigate yeah it, it definitely can be and it's it's funny that you bring that up because uh yesterday i actually caught up with one of my old co-workers who used to work at the state house very liberal kid uh, he recently moved to utah and he said to me now i understand what it's like for you to be a republican in massachusetts because utah is so conservative and, mm-hmm. and he's like i feel so like out of the blue there <laughs> But I don't know, like uh, the the hardest thing I think I had to deal with at MCLA with college Republicans was at one point I did have a semi-controversial event. And and I personally don't even think it's that controversial, but, you know, maybe somebody, you know, on the outside looking in, maybe you might disagree. I got the president and founder of Gun Owners of America came to campus and um, a lot of people 
were pretty upset about that. They didn't like the idea behind that. And apparently the man that was the founder, there was one student on campus found an article that the founder had attended an event uh, about gun rights at one point where somebody from the KKK was there. And so they saw that article that linked this guy, you know, they just happened to be at the same conference. It wasn't like they were BFFs or anything like that, but they attended the same event and the student took a lot of issue with it. And, you know, I understand their point. Uh, and they went to the school and complained and tried to get the event shut down. And they said that they were going to protest the event. So with, I mean, it was already hard enough because I was a fairly new club on campus. I'd only been there a year. So we don't get, you don't, at least for our school, you don't get student government funding unless you've been a club for more than a year. So I didn't have funding for the event. I had a fundraise for it all on my own to get the speaker there. So I had applied for grants through the Leadership Institute and I had contacted the local Republican town committees to see if they would donate to me, which they did. And like, that's the only reason I was able to help hold the event was because of this but then the kid mm -hmm. says you know well we're going to have people protest the event and you know what i you know i welcome that because he has the right to do that and if you don't agree with it by all means please do what you think is right you know it, it's in the constitution if you want to protest go right ahead but then the school said well there was a safety aspect of it and i now needed to hire police detail <laughs> and even though the event was only going to be an hour long because of police unions i have to pay them for four hours and i have to at least get two officers for four hours and so yeah. the cost just kept going up and up and up and all of this happened within like two weeks of the event so i was scrambling to find like 500 dollars to hold the event and eventually i did because of the local republican town committees that donated and then the kid and his cronies never showed up to protest <laughs> So oh, wow. the event was a success. We opened it up to people in the community who came. So it was great because students came, people in the like local North Adams, Berkshire community came in to hear this guy speak. So it was a great way to showcase what MCLA can offer to the community as well. And then they never showed up to protest. So that was kind of frustrating <laughs> because at that point, like I was ready to roll. I'm like, oh, well, you're going to protest, like whatever, like let's do this. And then they never came. So, you know, if this kid's out there listening, I'm a little disappointed he didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> but don't take it as an invitation to protest caitlin yeah, now at the state house don't, i think please the, don't the ever come passed. back into my life <laughs> oh my goodness um <laughs> but i well thank, thank you for, for sharing that again i know a lot of people who do listen to this podcast are either lean left or are democrats and so a lot of the times it's, it's i think it's so easy to not understand the other side so to speak because we especially with like the world we're living yeah. in now it's, it's so supercharged and it's so partisan but i want to highlight from like what you just said was you were first of all like extremely just committed to like what you wanted to do and to this whole process you've been committed to you know like i said making an open community for whoever wanted to show up and then also still like sticking to what you believe in and you didn't let people like drag you down really and i think it's like highlighting too like especially with women in politics, I feel like we have to do that a lot. <laughs> because again, we, we get to ex we experience so many things that other people may not experience and getting more pushback than things that we, sh we shouldn't get pushback on and making people making our lives more yeah, difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And that but, actually made me think yeah. of something, what you just said. While I was at MCLA, I also had another really unique opportunity, not related to the college Republicans, but because I was a political science major. Every year they do a uh, public policy speaker series. So we've had Cokie Roberts come one year, 
trying to think about uh, Jeffrey Tubin came one year or two from CNN. Uh, and then one year we had uh, former Governor Jane Swift came because she's actually from North Adams originally. And I got to interview her for it. And it was the coolest experience because she's somebody that's a role model to me. I mean, she was, I think, the youngest woman ever elected or at least youngest Republican woman ever elected to be a senator. She was only in her mid 20s, I think, when she won the seat in the Berkshires. And obviously she ended up, you know, going on to becoming lieutenant governor with Paul Salucci. And when he got appointed, I think to be ambassador of Canada, maybe, or some ambassador from the Bush administration, she obviously filled the seat for him as governor. And she actually was pregnant with twins at the time. And, you know, that's just not, so, yeah, you know, that's Good not something her. you see often even today. But I just think, you know, yeah. first of all, she's a Republican woman in Massachusetts. But even that, like she's one of she's the technically the first female governor of Massachusetts now whether you want to argue if she qualifies because she wasn't elected and she was just filling the seat is you know that's up for debate for another time but technically the first woman governor and she was pregnant with twins at the time and a working mother like I don't know moms don't get enough credit um, especially in politics it's hard to be a woman in politics when you have to worry about taking care of your kids you know who's and, and that's not to say that the father can't do that but Typically, as we know, you know, moms tend to be the caregiver in a situation like this. And I think that's why a lot of women choose not to run for office is because they're worried about what's mm -hmm. going to happen with my kids. You know, how am I going to fundraise? I don't have time to put children in childcare and then fundraise at the same time. That's going to cost a lot of money. You know, so there's all these other barriers that we see for women that traditionally you would not see for men reasons why women don't run and it's it's it goes some of it's just like black and white where like what you said like women are tend to be pushed into the roles of being like the the house makers and like having to take care of the kids but then there's other reasons that go so much deeper with what I, I talked about the ambition gap where it starts in college where up until that point you know men and women are have the same interest in politics but then once you yeah and it's so thank you for pointing that out because it's actually something I, I put in in um another episode of this podcast talking about like in my opinion the top five get to college men are pushed more to stick with politics and continue on and make a career out of that and women are, are shunted into more like traditional career paths and then that's where like the the gap starts to grow it, it's it's so fascinating there's i mean there's there are many reasons why women don't run or feel like they can't run or don't get involved in politics but i think you kind of hit the nail on the head where like the biggest reason is women feel like they can't because they feel like they have this responsibility to take care of the house and like not put themselves out there to yeah, do something and like it that. It can also be um, a double-edged yeah. sword too. I remember, I think it was this past election cycle and I'm not sure which congressional candidate it was, but there was one female Republican that was running and she had kids and people were criticizing her for not being a good mom because she was running and leaving her kids behind. But then you also have some people and on like the research that I've done on women in politics and particularly like why Republican women don't run. This is something I think that is seen more on the GOP side of things, but it could be also mm -hmm. for both parties. But if you don't have children, like people criticize you there because now you don't have that traditional family mm -hmm. aspect. So, you know, sometimes you just can't win in a situation like that. People are like, Oh, well, you don't want kids. Like what kind of monster are you then? Like you're giving up, you're giving up kids right. to run for office. And especially for a party that, you know, prides itself quote unquote on traditional family values, that can be a big, that can be a big problem for some people. And, and especially in Southern States to get voters. So I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's tough to be a woman. <laughs> oh, you're telling me. 
But uh, yeah, before we move on to the next topic, I wanted to just briefly, you know, connect something that I know from what you just said. So, I mean, Caitlin's right. In the GOP, it's very, you see less women like in office because of typically what she's talking about, like the traditional family value. But fun fact, if Republican, more Republican women were running, they have a higher chance of being elected because they tend to have likability on both sides of the aisle at that point. A lot of the times women who are Republican do share some values with Democrats in terms of like women's rights and things like that. So you actually have a a woman Republican actually has a higher likelihood in some cases to win over a woman who's a Democrat. But we just don't see women who are Republican running, which is, I think, really unfortunate because it's 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 something that people don't really think about. And if they think about a woman in politics, they think that they just assume that she's automatically a Democrat. But, you know, that's not the case. And at some point, I would love to see more women who are Republicans running for office on all levels. I hope you enjoyed part one of the conversation I got to have with Caitlin. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, you can expect part two to come out this Sunday. We touched more upon women in politics, specifically with state and local government. And it was a really great conversation and opportunity for me to connect back with Caitlin and, of course, you know, give you all a chance to listen to what she has to say. We are officially at the end to yet another episode of In the Isle. So just to recap what we talked about today in the news recap, we touched upon the For the People Act that passed the House and is making its way to the Senate as well as the cabinet confirmations we have seen this week and ended with the issues that we are having at the border and overall with the immigration policy that is coming from the White House. From there, we jumped to D-Cubed, where we talked about the president's cabinet and their function and what they do for the president. And of course, had that first half of the interview with Caitlin that you all got a chance to hear. Moving forward, again, you can expect the analysis and the second half of the interview in part two of this episode coming out on Sunday. And in general, for Women's History Month, you can expect the second interview I do to be with a woman from the Democratic Party to get get a balance and get equal representation from both sides of the aisle this month for Women's History Month. Be sure to follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you like what you've heard so far with this podcast in terms of the episode today and other episodes I've released. And as always, feel free to shoot me a follow at In the Isle Podcast on Instagram to get updates in terms of the episodes as well as fun facts that I distribute throughout the week. With all that being said, we are officially at the close to yet another episode of In the Isle. As always, I've been your host, Christina. It is an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I can't wait for you to join me on Sunday back in the aisle to hear more from Caitlin. Take care, everybody. Have a great rest of your Friday.